Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lightwork Presents Everything is Connected, where we share inspiring stories on a wide range of cultural and social issues worldwide. We also feature exclusive interviews with artists, educators, and professionals within the art world, while we specifically focus on the African diaspora. This is part two of our episode with Ferrari Shepherd. As you may already know, Ferrari has a show open now at Wilding Cran Gallery in Los Angeles. If you're in the LA area and you have time to stop by, please go check out the show of this incredibly talented young artist. Now, once again, before we begin, please pardon any audio interruptions or sound quality issues as this episode was recorded remotely with Ferrari in Los Angeles and me in New York City. Let's go! It's been a little over a month since my first call with Ferrari. Over the course of almost two hours, he shared with me his thoughts, his practice, and some of the intimate details of his life, the things that shaped him into the man he is today. As with every interview I've done so far, you really never know where the conversation will take you. You have an idea of what someone will say or what you will discover, but trust and believe that people will always surprise you. I was intrigued to hear Ferrari share with me his experiences growing up in Chicago as a young boy, one of the most segregated and violent cities in America. I was delighted to learn that he has six sisters and grew up in a household filled with women. When I look at his work and I think of the subjects that he creates, it's easy to understand and to envision the young boy who grew up surrounded by women on the south and north sides of Chicago during his formative years. Ferrari touched on things topics and ideas that are universally understood. He spoke about specific instances that pertain to him as an individual. The more we talked and I thought about our conversation later and I looked at his work, I can see an immense amount of love, of emotion, a deep well of feeling in his figurative paintings. I saw myself as a young girl playing in the neighborhood that I grew up in on the block that I lived on in Brooklyn. I saw little black girls playing as children, joyful and full of exuberant life. I saw mothers with their children and I thought of my own mother, of the countless black mothers in America who've seen and lived through the horror of police brutality as their children are taken from them. But in truth, it is not tragedy or pain that I see in Ferrari's work, but an immense amount of beauty, of love, and of a passion for life that fills his canvases. Let's dive into our episode, part two with Ferrari Shepard. You talked a bit about these range of experiences from being a black person in Africa, living in Africa, looking at the world from that frame, and then also coming back to America and a shift in your perspective. Can you talk more about how you feel about that? The experience of coming from America and living in Africa and then coming back? Coming back was um, bittersweet for me. It was No, it was just bitter, actually, because I did not want, I felt like I, I failed. I was trying to create a situation where I never had to come back to America. And I realized it wasn't time for that. It wasn't time in my career. I say, well, man, I have to really do some amazing things in order to make this dream come true. Because my dream is to move back to the continent. I don't know which country yet, but I don't want to be where I'm not wanted. You know, if I have, and I know that's a very privileged position. Most people work a job, whether you're in Africa or America or wherever you are, you work a job and you might not ever make just enough to cover the bills. So how are you going to move to a whole nother country? It's a privileged thing, but I say just like with Nina Simone or um, some of her contemporaries, where she had to, she went 
went to France, which I didn't understand, quite frankly, because I'm like, France is one of the biggest colonizers in the world. But so it was it was like he was moving from maybe she just needed a change of scenery. But, uh, <laughs> you know, because there's definitely racism in France. There's definitely racism. Yeah. I know for myself as a creative person, I say if I can bring some of the wealth back to the continent, that's important for me. Yeah. It's also important for my peace of mind. I believe I, I was in um, Tanzania. I was walking in the market one day, you know, and I got, I have all my flip flops and my beach shorts, you know, that's just the attire. And I realized for the first time in my life, I was being viewed as a human being, not a suspect. I was so elated because I was like, you know what? I wish more of the Africans in America and, and, and abroad had this experience. Right. Although police make me corrupt, but when I approach police officer, they're looking at me like a fucking human being. I experienced that also in Haiti. Haiti, you know, I was actually hanging out as much as I used to. I do. I said, fuck the police. And I still say it. I'll say it. I have a very strained relationship with police. And you want to know why? Because I grew up in the fucking projects every during the crack era. Police literally would pull me over so many times that I thought that this was just natural. I thought that this is, I thought actually that my friends and I, we were wrong. There was something, our existence was wrong. We couldn't stand on the corner. We couldn't walk down the street. We couldn't get out. It was like, okay, I don't belong anywhere. They would pull us into, you know, an alley, a dark uh, alleyway or wherever, or uh, into a restaurant, bathroom, and they would put their fingers in our ass searching for crack. Completely takes away your manhood. That's crazy. They would threaten to put us in the trunk and take us to the river and beat the shit up shit out of us, planting crack on us. You know, these low-level crack dealers were getting draconian sentences under the mandatory minimum sentencing. Right. That is, for people who don't know what mandatory minimum sentencing is, that meant that one gram of crack rock would get you the same amount of time as 100 grams of powder cocaine, which was more popular with maybe someone who's smuggling the drug into the country or a white person. Yes, exactly. It was just used as a reason to just completely erase parts of my generation. Black men are just, they're gone. They don't even exist in the world anymore. They've just been taken. And I think if you don't- In America. Yeah, if you you don't call it that, and and if you don't use the strong language that I think is needed to describe how evil and how insidious the system of like of just the prison industrial complex is of what slavery is of like what the fuck is wrong with America today if you don't call it what it is I think you're doing a disservice to everyone who's who's like been exploited in this country anyone who went to jail for no fucking reason like if you don't say this shit is wrong then I think it's almost like giving a pass it is but see for me you know just to backtrack to talk about what we were talking about like I had all all of these like institutional people they say how are you doing during this time are you okay yes. and i'm like i don't want to fucking talk right okay um, <laughs> that's how i'm doing i used to be like this this interview is actually unique because i don't give interviews like this anymore you know i was extremely vocal politically yeah and what i learned is that you know i was getting into so much so much trouble you know it is just like you know i could have to find another way to do this right because i'm a talented person 
And sometimes, you know, like I was, we were talking about, about um, anger, how anger can work for you, but it can also work against you, right? So I say I have to strategize on a way that I could do this in a healthy way where I win. I often think that, and I know this for a fact, that Africans, we have been oppressed for so long that I don't think that we can envision ourselves winning. For me, it's so, it's so important to see yourself winning. And by that, I mean, you must have one must have a plan to, to know what you're going to do after you win, right? How are you going to be different from this white supremacist society that has, has oppressed you? How will you differ? Okay. These are the things that I began thinking about and, you know, they make their way into my work because, you know, like my work generally, you know, this is very hopeful, but I'm thinking about winning. I'm thinking about life post all this bullshit, all the oppression. And some of the most, the most brilliant minds, first of all, some of the most brilliant minds that I know of are incarcerated or um, disenfranchised. But some of the most brilliant minds, I feel they fell short. And that includes the Black Panther Party. That includes all of the people who I respect. I don't think we've been trained to plan for our demise. Everyone wants to be Huey P. Newton on social media right now. And they want this large audience. They want to be a junior cult leader. But, you know, I don't think that they have thought what it means to win. How are we? How do we operate? How are we different? How do we make a better world? You understand? Yeah, so 100%. That, that's where I am. I'm in the future because I already know, you know, I was born and I'm like, I knew that the world was, was fucking on fire when I was a baby. Like I was raised in some of the most like the craziest situations ever, you know, just uh, urban decay. And I always knew like from a young age, I say, I'm going to leave this place. It's probably not going to be much different. Change comes in increments. And then sometimes it just expedites itself and it just goes straight to straight to the top. Right. I need to know in terms of Africans that we're going to be different than our oppressors. I grew up in a, I have six sisters, matriarchy, you know, and that's powerful. So, I mean, I can't understand how you understand oppression as a black man, as an African who's hunted on this earth everywhere you go, whether you're African-American, African-Brit, but you got to realize that your counterpart, your mother, your sister, your lover is also hunted. Yes. And if what you want to do is take the role of the oppressor and all you just you just upset that you're not the oppressor, that's a problem because you should be trying to get rid of the oppression, period. Right. The world is fucked up the way Africans and black people are treated, the way we treat ourselves, violence against women, you got violence against gay people. You know, there's so much out there that sometimes can become overwhelming. And that's why when you look at my art, it's free from that because I think that when we say Black Lives Matter, I say we also deserve something that makes us feel good. And everybody can't take a vacation. So you need an escape. And if it's nothing else but seeing yourself in a regal, beautiful way, that's what I can provide. Then that's what it'll be, you know, for now. Yeah, I love that. You talked earlier about um, healing um, and, and getting at the root of, you know, the problems within the black community, within the African community that we need to heal ourselves. And it feels like your work is like your response to that. It, it really is. For me, pain is easy for me because I've experienced and I'm thinking every human being has experienced pain. But to articulate beauty, that is something that is rare and it's so necessary in this world. One of my elders used to tell me, he said, put something beautiful in the world. 
because we need it. That's the that's a challenge. So that's where I am in my practice. It it does just so you know, it's something new for me. Like I guess what I wanna I wanna say to I wanna say to younger artists out there is that once you make it through that struggle, it is so worth it. Keep going, like keep going. You know, take an honest, I will tell you this, take an honest inventory of your abilities and just ask yourself, is this something that you are extremely passionate about and that you believe is great? And if so, stick with it because it's going to be worth it. We all have to have patience for good things to come into our lives, whether that's how you discover yourself as a creator, whether that's how you discover yourself as a member of your community. You know, there are all of these roles that we have in life. And I think just having that patience to figure out who you are is super important. And I think with regards to young people, just adding to your point, because we're in this immediate gratification social system, sometimes it's hard to take the time that you need for true discovery of oneself, you know? Indeed. You know, this instant, this idea of instant gratification, look at some of the people who you admire. They made something that was in the material. I'm talking about the, the, the real world, not the digital right. world. They were creating things that are physical and that can last forever. And I'm not, that's not to discredit anyone who is doing work online, but it's also important to bring this back to the real physical three-dimensional space, you know? Yeah. And I know COVID-19, it was like, get ready. This is the new normal. I'm like, bullshit. You will never keep people away from each other. Like, it's impossible. We are social creatures. And I know the dangers. My family had COVID. I'm staying safe. But when it comes down to it, I will not accept that type of pessimism. We will hug again, just like this virus exists. So does the thing inside of us that survives it. Do you think that, that we're in a place, maybe as a people or as, like as Black people, or in the state of the world right now where healing can actually take place with everything that's been going on? Do you think that people's sense of consciousness has been heightened? Or I don't know what, what everyone else is going to do. I think the revolution starts within. In my 20s, I thought of things in a broad scope. And I was also an idealist. I grouped everything together. This happened because of this. So there had to be, and I was a conspiracy theorist. You you know, you look at movements or whatever. What happens after that is way more important. It's on each individual how this plays out. So, you know, like all of the, my white colleagues who are, you know, text messaging and emailing, I hope that they keep that same curiosity and same empathy throughout their lives. I can't force them to do that. I can show them what's happening, and that's the only thing that I can do. I can't force them to do that, but I hope so. And I hope that, you know, this talk of black businesses and supporting black businesses, it comes into also a conversation about black capitalism not being a solution for um, oppression. No, because capitalism is oppression. I mean, that, that it is oppression. It doesn't exist without the oppression of the majority of that society. Yeah, exactly. Capitalism is saying, hey, we're going to privatize your water, your drinking water, because we know you need it to live. But we're going to make a profit on it first. I wrote this once. I said that every human being is on the surface of a giant ball that's racing through space at 68,000 miles per hour. And we don't know why. <laughs> this shit is crazy, okay? You know, I always try to remind people. I say, man, everybody here, that includes these white supremacist motherfuckers and whoever else is trying to figure shit out, right? That's not to say that they're not accountable and they shouldn't be held accountable. But it gives a greater understanding 
of where we are. We're just all trying to figure this shit Absolutely. out and make it through this. I'm talking life right now. This is a, like we're dealing with it in real time together. It's crazy as hell. It's crazy as hell. I stopped trying to explain to white people what it feels like to be black. They see they know throughout the history of black struggles and liberation has always been those white people who opened their doors. I'm talking about during the Underground Railroad, be it that or Selma. Some of them put their lives, they actually gave their lives. But at the core of who we are, we're so connected to a soul, to a spiritual, to, to our spiritual, that it's difficult for us to ever go that far into it into evil. One time this woman asked me when I was like, I used to live in Harlem for a while and she was like, she said, do you think that there is more good or bad in the world? And my gut reaction and my true reaction still to this day, I said, there's more bad. I think that there's more bad in the world. And what makes the good special is that it's so rare. I think that, you know, we're always, the universe is always struggling to create and find, maintain an equilibrium. But but then when you look at some of the great catastrophes of the world, and then you measure them against these movements where there's peace and love movement, the catastrophes seem way more to more damaging. So what makes us what makes what makes the good so great is that it's not a lot of it. It's just like when you have a great day. Let's just say you have a great day. It's like ice cube type of today was a good day type of day. Summer out. It's so amazing because that don't happen every day. What happens every day is either just some mundane shit or it's some fucked up shit. You know what I'm saying? So by the time everything comes around, you be like, damn, I had a great day. It's special. So that's why I believe that. So I believe that, you know, that the good people of this earth, they're very valuable. They're vulnerable as well, but they're valuable. Like Nipsey, the world saw how good Nipsey was this motherfucker was like you know basically widely I'll, I'll say it it's controversial but people don't want to hear it it was widely ignored nipsey hustle was he was underrated and widely ignored for his life in his lifetime it took him to die for people just like jesus christ to come and say look at what he's done he's the kind of guy who comes around once in a generation exactly you don't get too many nipsies where is the woman counterpart to that can you talk to me a little bit about your Americana series and like what are the messages that you wanted to convey with that work? Well, okay, so my solo show, it's going to be my first solo show here in Los Angeles. The show is called The Heroines of Innocence. It's an offshoot of my Americana series. The Americana series was an examination of the so-called age of innocence in America, being the 1950s and early 60s. And growing up, we always saw like this black and white footage of like black people and Mexicans and brown people. We were all missing from this idealism that was set forth. You know, I had an idea to invert or subvert that image of this uh, Americana. You know, if you actually, if you look up Americana on the internet, what might start coming up is a lot of racist propaganda and figurines where they had little black Sambo and they had, you know, just all this horrible stuff. And I wanted to examine what that meant. You know, so I went deeper and I started envisioning a world where black people had never been in, had never been oppressed, never been colonized, never been enslaved. What I came up with was the Americana series. And it was like, you know, pure joy, man. Like when it comes down to it, like, you know, the family, the family structure, the nuclear 
family structure was still together. That's what that series was about. I mean, there's so many paintings that I've seen, just, you know, images, researching, looking at your work, things, scenes that remind me of of my life being a young Black girl. And I'm sure that there are so many Black women in America who can look at your piece and, and be transported into a scene from their past. That's one thing when I started the series, especially the heroines of innocence, that is like the heroes of innocence, but it's with women. Women in my life have been really important. You know, like, I mean, obviously, you know, mom, but also just like being there, I'm the only, I'm the only guy in my family. Like, I'm six sisters and one, one little dude, you know, like I was the youngest, oldest brother, you know, because I became, I became a protector and a provider later in life. I, I, I felt like a lot of things that we attribute to like gender roles have come from society, you know, modern society, be it at that, because if you look at some of like at least Western, like the Dahomey and these different Western, West African countries, yeah. their, their history, they were matriarchal. Up until a certain point, you know, like I think that things changed. And when, you know, like there was there's a uh, Zulu elder who recently passed. His uh, name is Credo Mutua. And he spoke about he used to always speak about you can look at him on YouTube and look him up. He always spoke about the imbalance that was happening in the world Mm. between masculine and feminine energy and how masculine energy is represented through corporatism, war, capitalism, greed, aggression. And it's also represented through linear thought. Things are very linear, whereas feminine energy is represents more intuition. It actually opposes the corporate corporatocracy or corporate ethos. There is no balance. We, We need both for these energy, but they have to be a balance. You know, with the heroines of innocence, I'm seeking to put a balance back into the world, even if it's one painting at a time. Patriarchy and all this shit, it's hurt me too. Like, people don't realize it hurts men, like, too, like, a lot. I never can show emotions outside of anger, fear, you know, no fear. It's always like that, that just erodes away at the soul, you know? So it's actually hurting me as well. And I don't think a lot of, like, a lot of men know that, that it's hurting us. We know it. We know it. We don't know how to articulate and say, I'm tired of this too. Because, you know, growing up around all women, I knew that women perpetuate patriarchy just as much as men. That's where I am in my practice right now. And I also am really interested in, you know, just the classic, uh, the classic muses of art, you know, woman with child. This is something that goes back a thousand years, you know. I'm challenging what it means to to depict a figure. Well, there you have it, folks. It's a wrap. Catch us on our next episode where we'll continue to bring you real stories and unique perspectives of some of today's most exciting artists, curators, and entrepreneurs in the art world as we continue to focus on the African diaspora. As always, stay motivated, stay inspired, and stay up. Peace and love, y'all. We out. Ferrari's show at Wild and Cran Gallery is on view until October 31st. If you're in the Los Angeles area, go check it out. His show is now sold out. Congrats to Ferrari and the folks over at Wild and Cran Gallery. Keep your eyes on this young talent, as I'm sure we will see him continue to grow and develop as an incredible artist. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Lightwork Presents Everything is Connected, conversations on culture and current events with some of today's most exciting creative contemporaries. Mm-hmm.